Hey guys, I'm Kayla. And I'm Kayla's mom, Alicia. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Our show, you know that we are so glad you made it here. You are in the right place for your true crime fix. Thank you for supporting True Crime Exposed and helping us not only expose some of the worst people that exist all around us and commit these terrifying crimes, but most of all, you're helping us give each victim story exposure. You're helping us support the life of anyone that was taken from us unjustly, and you're helping us share these stories, and you're being victim advocates. We love being able to be that voice for those that no longer have one, for getting their stories to you guys. Each victim we talk about holds a special place in our hearts. Are you ready for today's case? Okay, guys, we are back for part two of this insane story. So make sure that you go listen to part one before you listen to this episode or you'll be confused. We are talking about the infamous Daybell case and the murders of Tylee Ryan, J.J. Vallow, Charles Vallow, Tammy Daybell, and, you know, probably more people. In part one, we covered the life of Lori Vallow up until her split from her third husband, Joe Ryan, and into her meeting her fourth husband, Charles Vallow. We basically saw that Lori has seemed troubled from the beginning. She has a pattern of manipulating a situation to fit her narrative. She has not handled any split with her spouses in a mature way. Once she is ready to cut someone out of her life, she shows this pattern of needing to completely destroy them, tear down their character, and play the victim. We also saw through our coverage last week that Lori's evil and erratic thoughts were really always present long before she even met Chad Daybell. Now, remember at the end of that last episode, Lori and third husband Joe Ryan had just split up. And as she met and married Charles Vallow, Joe and Lori were going through a super intense custody battle where Lori was accusing Joe of sexually abusing both Colby and Tylee. Joe had to undergo a psychosexual evaluation and then Joe petitioned to have Lori evaluated and giving, given a psychiatric assessment. Through all this, we ended on talking about that attack on Joe Ryan that was perpetrated by Lori's oldest brother, Alex Cox. She seems like she seems like such a manipulator. I know. Let's see. Was it her second husband? She said abused her. Yep. Like physically. Yep. And then her third husband. Now she's claiming that he abuses the her kids. Sexually abuses the kids. And then it's so like, it's, and with her second husband, she also said his stepdad also abused her it's like why do you keep choosing these terrible men i'm i bet you they're not that terrible i think it's her exactly (laughs) and i think she's manipulating her brother too oh yeah because 
you know, he attacked Joe because he thinks Joe's some pedophile and she's just like has him. I do not know why her brother is so loyal to her. I would not be that loyal to my siblings. No. Like I would not kill for them. Sorry, guys. Mm-mm. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it, it's super weird. It's like a really weird dynamic that Alex and Lori have. Yeah. So like I said, Alex had been told by Lori that Joe was a pedophile and he was not okay with that. Obviously, no sane person would be. However, Alex is not sane because he takes things to a whole other level. Even though Joe Ryan was investigated and all the claims were unsubstantiated, Alex goes to where Joe is, supposed to meet Lori to pick up Tylee. I'm sure Lori set him up for this. And Alex takes a taser and starts tasing Joe Ryan until Joe runs into a witness. And ultimately, Alex walks away. That is where we ended last week. So continuing on with this same storyline, we talked about how Alex was charged and convicted of attacking Joe. Now, Alex actually had somewhat of a stand-up comedian career, which is so weird to me. And there are clips where Alex is joking about this whole situation, about how he tased a pedophile and they were in Texas. So he thought he would get some sort of a handshake, maybe a medal. But really, he got jail time. And he's just laughing and basically being like, why would I get jail time for taking down a pedophile? It's like, well, Alex, because Joe was not proven to be a pedophile and you can't just attack people. It's not within the law. (laughs) Yeah. You can't just go tase people and tell them you're going to kill them. So, yes, you go to jail for that. (laughs) When starting this joke, he goes, quote, I'll confess to you guys. You ever had something that you knew was the right thing to do, but later on it turns out it's a felony. End quote. Alex was honestly kind of obsessed with Joe Ryan during his 90 days in jail for the attack. While serving his time, he wrote letters to one of his stand-up comedian friends, Mary Tracy, and one letter stated, quote, Do me a favor, call Janice. Ask her to put Joe's address on a postcard and his license plate number. I think it will be popular in here. End quote. And remember, Janice is the mom of Alex and Lori. It will be popular in here. What does that mean? I think that's like a threat. Like, put his address and his license on a on a postcard and put it in here. It will be popular. Like, people from here are, like, going to go beat him up or something. Okay, sounds kind of odd. Yes. And then he writes another letter and wrote, quote, P.S., can you get a picture from Lori of one of her ex-husbands and send it to me? Some of the guys would like to hang out with him. End quote. So the same thing, like just kind of another threat about his friends in jail, I guess. Okay. And as we can see, Alex, while literally sitting his butt in jail for this attack on Joe, clearly was not learning his lesson from this jail sentence because he is still trying to find ways to harm Joe from prison. Yeah, he like justifies it because he's a pedophile. Yeah. But but still, people can't just freely punish pedophiles. No, it's like, I mean, pedophiles are the worst, but also Joe's... I mean, Joe was investigated and deemed to not be one, as far as they could tell. 
Now, regardless of all the threats against his life, Joe Ryan continues to fight for his daughter, Tylee Ryan. Lori undergoes psychiatric assessments, but she passes them with flying colors. She's charming. She knows how to make herself look completely sane, which shows me, like we've said, that she's a manipulator. Two years after the taser attack on Joe, him and Lori are still bitterly fighting for custody of Tylee. Tylee is now six years old at this time, and this contention was taking a huge toll on her. No six-year-old should have to feel this type of stress. She was very involved in the custody battle. As we know, she was interviewed many times. Through the investigations, she has had to see counselors and talk with many other authority figures. Tylee's court-appointed guardian, Mary Fogel, stated, quote, there are many disturbing events in this case that included a tasering incident at Kids Exchange after the first supervised visit and an alleged assault in the courthouse cafeteria after a hearing. I am concerned about the level of tension affecting Tylee's emotional well-being if visits continue during this period of uncertainty. Tylee has spoken with me about being scared and not being able to sleep at night. Mary also said that this custody battle was a, quote, highly dramatic and emotional custody suit and that she had been hospitalized twice during this time and was diagnosed with pancreatitis. Quote, I suspect her medical and emotional state has been adversely affected by the sustained level of conflict and the many trials and legal proceedings in this case. End quote. Which, what is pancreatitis? Pan- I don't think I said that right. Pancreatitis? <laughs> oh, so you have a pancreas. Um, it's an organ in your body, and it just kind of gets inflamed and can make you pretty sick. Okay. And so that could come on from, like, stress? Um, I guess. I didn't know it could. I don't know. It's just the... I mean, I don't think Mary's a doctor or anything, but she just thought that Tylee kept having medical problems because of her stress. Now, this whole battle started when Tylee was almost two years old. So by 2009, Tylee had been going through this battle for about four years already, and the fight would not end here. Two more years of fighting for custody, and we come to August 5th, 2011. Joe Ryan files a petition to modify the child custody, parenting time, and child support. He had done this previously with what seems little to no luck. His reasons for filing this petition seem legit to me. Joe seems to have always known that Tylee was in danger in the care of her mom. Joe states that the Chandler Police Department, which is in Arizona, charged Lori with interfering with the judicial process regarding court-ordered visitation. Basically, she was keeping Tylee from Joe when it was his visitation. With this, he says that Lori will do anything to make sure that she denies Joe of his visitation and his right to his daughter. He explains how he went to a play that Tylee was in, and he was taking videos of her performing like all parents do, and she's super happy to see her dad, and Joe caught all of this on video, but before he knows it, Tylee is taken from the theater by an unknown person, and Lori does not allow him to talk to her after, to see her, or to contact her about her performance. 
He says that Lori's mom and sister, Janice Cox and Summer Shiflet, were involved with this seclusion during this time. Now, I can see Lori's family wanting to help Lori keep her kids from Joe. Like if Lori's telling them that Joe's a pedophile that abused Tylee, I would absolutely keep my daughter away from this guy too. But like we've stated, we know these claims were somewhat proven illegitimate and the court awarded Joe visitation after he was investigated. Lori was a great manipulator though, so... I'm sure she told her family anything to get them to help her keep Tylee from Joe. Joe goes on to explain that he has been the victim of parental alienation since May of 2006. Remember, this is in 2011. So at this point, it has been more than five years and Tylee is around eight years old now. So do the court um, appointed... Uh, custody evaluators. Can, does it say whether they side with Lori or with... So I have seen a couple of datelines where some of the court, like those people are talking and they're the ones saying like that these claims were unsubstantiated and they seem to really side with Joe Ryan. And one of the ladies, I think in one of them, like I don't have it in here, but I remember she said something like, Basically, along the lines of if people would have listened to me back then, then maybe like this kid wouldn't have been, you know, been hurt because she basically thought that Lori was crazy, like basically psychologically abusing Tylee by putting these ideas in her head and really involving her and all of that stuff. So from what I can tell, the court is more on the side of Joe, but yet the they're not really taking Tylee from Lori. I don't know if there was really enough evidence for them to do that, but people were definitely weary of Lori at this time. Okay. So Joe goes on to explain that between the time Tylee was three years old and five years old, he wasn't allowed by Lori any contact with her for more than a year. And then Joe explains the sexual. I know that's so so long, long huh? That's so sad. I can't imagine not seeing my kid that's for a year be so infuriating to joe ryan yeah and this was i mean remember Lori was his only wife ever and tylee was his only kid and he seems like he really cared about her he moved out to arizona to be close to her and fight for custody and this battle like basically almost never ends until he's out of the picture So Joe goes on to explain the sexual allegations and he states that Lori has continuously used psychological abuse and that the therapists involved in the custody battle have asked Lori to stop pushing Tylee to say certain things, but that Lori refused. He explained in this petition that there are more than four years of documented pressure and coaching that led their three-year-old at the time, Tylee Ryan, to say things that a three-year-old would just not understand or know. Words such as molested and if she told I would kill her or burn her family to death. So these were like little phrases Tylee must have relayed. And the therapist says that Tylee kept saying the same thing over and over, like she was happy about the visits, all this stuff. And then one day her tune just kind of changed. 
And remember, we talked about in the last episode how her mom came in once and Tylee was like, okay, I told her. So we can see here that Lori was really coaching Tylee. And Joe states that there is absolutely no way that their daughter could have understood these allegations at the young age of three years old. Because of this, Tylee was seen by advocates, police, and therapists around 30 times within a four-year period. Yeah, that's a really weird statement that she would say, okay, I told her. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that obviously it's like, points that she was told that, hey, you need to tell him this. I feel really bad for Tylee. Especially three years old. Three-year-olds definitely. No. Would not know. I think Lori used Tylee from the time she was a kid and I just feel so sad for her. I feel like she did her like the most wrong. I mean, it's obviously damaging to kids to put them in the middle and manipulate them and try to get them to hate the other parent. And I think Lori never really let Tylee express that she ever even cared for her dad. And I I can tell she did from certain things she did express, but like Lori just didn't accept that. Like, nope. Nope, don't talk about your dad. Yeah, Lori was a pretty messed up woman. She was. In this petition, Joe goes on to talk about that time that Tylee was hospitalized for that pancreatitis. Is it pancreatitis? Yeah. I said it wrong the first time when I went through. So at the time, Lori was asked to provide an immediate family history, but instead of listing Joe as her father, she listed her current husband, Charles Vallow, as Tylee's biological father. And Joe was not notified or listed anywhere that would cause him to be notified. And then he also talks about how that guardian, Mary Fogel, stated that Tylee's medical issues have come up from stress related to the case. With this, he says that him and Lori actually settled back in August of 2009, but that Lori has refused to comply or end the fighting over Tylee. Joe talks about how in 2009, Lori was actually charged and found guilty of disturbing the peace. This was because Joe and Tylee went to a vacation in Gilbert, Arizona, and during their trip, Lori and Charles just show up and they take Tylee. Just straight up came, got Tylee, who was on vacation with her dad, and they just take her. And then the police were called, and later she was proven to be lying to the judge in the case, who ultimately did charge her as guilty. So later this same year that Joe files his petition in 2011, Lori responds to the petition denying all the allegations and she asks the court to reduce Joe's access to Tylee, but to increase his child support payments. Of course. Like, give him less time, but make him pay me more. Well, yeah, she's going to be with her more, so she needs more support. Yep. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, Joe and Lori would go on four years fighting for Tylee. So right now, let's go back and look into Lori's fourth marriage to her husband, Charles Vallow. Remember, they married in the middle of this contentious custody battle between Lori and Joe. Charles Vallow was raised in Lake Charles, Louisiana. He was named after his dad, Leyland Eli Vallow. 
Remember, we talked about this last episode, but Charles' full name is actually Leyland Charles Anthony Vallow. He was born on August 17, 1956, and Charles grew up in a pretty large family. He has four sisters and two brothers. We know of his sister, Kay Woodcock, who was the grandmother of a child that Charles and Lori later adopt, but we'll get into those details later. And basically the hero of the story. Like really is the one who brought all the attention to this. And just recently, two of his brothers appeared on the newest Dateline episode on this case titled The Doomsday Files, which did you watch that? No, was it on Friday? It's really good. Yeah, it was on Friday. I was thinking it was this Friday, which I was sad about because I would have been done with like all of our episodes by then, but it was actually last Friday. So I watched it over the weekend. Yeah, I really want to watch it. And I did get a lot of information from that episode. Anyway, the two brothers who appeared in this Dateline episode are Jerry Vallow and Robert Vallow, who goes by Bobby. Charles grew up playing baseball. That was his passion. So after he graduated from Barb High School in 1974, he went to McNeese State University to play baseball for them and he played for two years in both 1975 and 1976. There is actually very little information I could find on Charles. His life and family have seemed to remain a bit more private, but I do know that Charles, like Lori, was married multiple times, and while he was Lori's fourth husband, she was his third wife. So Charles first marries Kimberly William and their marriage would end in a pretty clean split. They didn't have any kids together, so they were able to split up and just go their separate ways. They were only married for a couple of years and they had married in Dallas, Texas on March 16th, 1984. And Kimberly filed for divorce on August 18th, 1986. Kimberly is now known as Kimberly Friedmutter, and she actually did an interview with The Sun, and she explains that during their marriage, Charles had cheated on her, and this is what led her to make that decision to file for divorce and leave Charles, which of course was a very valid reason, and is probably what most of us would do after discovering an affair. She did an interview with their son? The Sun. It's like a news place. The Sun. Oh, The Sun, S-U-N. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I thought you meant like, The Sun, S-O-N. Now, Kimberly has actually gone on to become a celebrity hypnotherapist. She has treated stars like Sharon Stone. Do you know who that is? Uh-huh. Oh, I don't. Oh, who yeah. is it? Coach thinks she's so sexy. <laughs> Oh, who is she? Is she like a singer, an an actress? Um, she's just an actress. Okay. She's in multiple movies and she's really pretty. I'm sure if I looked her up, I'd know her. But yeah, so she's treated her with, you know, hypnotherapy. And Kimberly has also written a book and it was a bestseller. It's titled Subconscious Power. And... Kimberly is really, really gorgeous. She seems like she's created a great life for herself. She's super successful and she looks overall like a really great person. 
She explains Charles in this interview as, quote, super dynamic. He was very personable, very charming. He just had that glow and that that starlight about him, end quote. But almost as soon as Charles and Kimberly got married, he also got a new girlfriend. And six months after the couple did marry, Charles's girlfriend calls the house looking for him, but Kimberly answers instead. Kimberly explains to the son that this is how she found out about his affair, quote, it didn't a hundred percent surprise me. He just needed that, I guess. And so I filed for divorce right away upon finding out upon finding that out and we took it from there. It took us a while to get the divorce because he had kind of blocked it for a while and didn't really seem to want it. But there was no question for me that I needed to move on at that point. End quote. And Kimberly actually feels a lot of guilt for divorcing Charles now that she knows he was murdered, which we'll get into those details later on. And Kimberly says, quote, it makes me very sad that he did what he did and that our relationship has ended as it did because it is my belief that you're supposed to be married forever. And it was his belief that you should be married forever. He did not want the divorce, but but because I couldn't get over it and didn't choose to work past the infidelity, he married again. There wouldn't have been other wives and there wouldn't have been Lori if I had stayed with him. Well, I'm sorry, but if he keeps cheating, how does he think a marriage should last forever? I know. He just wants his wife to put up with it? <laughs> exactly. It's like, you can't feel guilty. It's like, if you want your marriage to last forever, then don't cheat. No. And pretty much almost everyone would leave. So she definitely should not feel guilty. That feels, that's sad that she feels guilty. She goes on to say there wouldn't have been other wives and there wouldn't have been Lori if I stayed with him. This wouldn't have ever occurred. He would still be alive. We'd still be married. Oh, no, we'd been married such a short time, but he did fight for our marriage for years to not get divorced. End quote. But yeah, no, it's very common for couples to get divorced and split up after an affair. Like no one expects you to stay through that if you don't want to. Now, after she divorced Charles, he would go on to meet his second wife, Cheryl Willer. Charles and Cheryl got married on May 18th, 1991. This was five years after his divorce from Kimberly. Cheryl and Charles met that same year that they were married because they had mutual friends and then they married really quickly. At this time, they were living in Austin, Texas. Cheryl explains Charles saying, quote, he was very charming and always dressed very nicely. He's definitely a salesman. He helped a lot of people and a lot of good friends and he had a lot of good friends. He came from a big family who was very close and he was this interesting guy from Louisiana that ended up in Texas, end quote. Cheryl and Charles were married for quite some time. They stayed together for 12 years. And by the end of it all, they had two sons, Cole and Zach. Quote, he would take them fishing and to campouts and Boy Scouts and just loved doing all of that. Charles was an athlete, but my boys were not into baseball or football. They did rowing and soccer, and he was very supportive of all of their activities, end quote. But not all love stories last, and on April 9th, 
2003, Cheryl Willer filed not only for a divorce, but also for a restraining order. Cheryl stated in her affidavit that this was due to his temper, his bipolar, and alcohol addiction. She claimed that his bipolar medication did not work due to the fact that he consumed alcohol while on it. And then Cheryl goes on in this to explain situations she found scary, such as Charles reacting angrily to his sons fighting over a toy and explaining that she thought Charles was becoming more unstable. Now, Charles responds to this affidavit and she and he says that the restraining order was obtained based on incorrect facts. Quote, it is true I have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I take medication for it. Until two weeks ago, my diagnosis had been agitated depression, at which time my psychiatrist diagnosed me as bipolar. I take Depakote for this condition and feel it's working. End quote. Do you know that medication? Is that, Am I saying that right? Depakote? Yes, you are. Well, then Cheryl accuses Charles of threatening to take the kids from her and that she would never see them again. And Charles explains this fight by saying it was a heated argument over her spending habits because she had purchased a comforter for $2,300 without talking to him, which like, oh, holy moly, I would like kind of be mad too. $2,000 on a comforter? Dang, that's an expensive That is blanket. expensive. <laughs> like, you could find probably a really good one for 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah, that must have been, had gold in it or something. <laughs> I know, like, whoa. Now, Charles says, quote, I'm not an alcoholic. I drink no more than two glasses of wine per evening, which is the same consumption as my wife, and I do not get drunk. I have never driven under the influence with children. I have never hit my wife nor threatened to. The police have never had a domestic violence call to our home. My wife has hit me, however. Cheryl pushed me and threatened to take the children. I replied, no, I will. End quote. So as we can see, Charles and Cheryl's divorce seems to be filled with disagreements and fighting, which unfortunately, when kids are involved, this happens far too often. Parents can't agree. There is too much emotion from both sides. And it happens too much where both parents want to take the other one down. And then just a couple months after Cheryl files for that restraining order, Charles was actually arrested for a misdemeanor assault with injury on May 18th, 2003. So Charles was the one who actually called the police. So he calls 911 and he's like, hey, I'm worried that my wife is going to come here to my house and start an argument with me. Like it's not looking good over here. However, when the police get there, they find out that Charles was the one who had been calling Cheryl and she was on her way over with the kids. Basically, Charles had called her multiple times, threatening to tell their children about an affair she had. When she arrived, emotions were already heated and the ex-couple got into an altercation. 
Charles did push Cheryl and grabbed her. And the incident report states that Charles was angry about the alleged affair and that the injuries included pain and redness. With this, Cheryl was granted an emergency protection order against Charles that same day, May 18th, 2003. Soon after this, their final decree of divorce was signed on June 27th, 2003. And then on August 1st, 2003, Cheryl asks the court to dismiss the assault charges against Charles. The two would actually go on to continue their arguments and disagreements in court over the children, though. I think they kind of go back and forth through the years between getting along and then fighting over the kids, which again is unfortunately somewhat common in these types of divorces where the children are involved. Getting along can be a really difficult task. Yeah. A few years after this divorce with Cheryl, Charles goes on to meet the love of his life, who was going by Lori Ryan at the time. And Charles would end up loving Lori more than anything. He loved her to death, like literally to his death. She quickly became a huge light in his life. And as we know, the couple got married in Las Vegas on February 24th, 2006, officially blending their families. Of course, only after Charles converted from the Catholic Church into the Mormon Church. Remember, this is not really an option for Lori to be with anyone that does not join the church with her. And Charles' brothers explained Charles doing this by saying, quote, he would have done anything to make her happy, end quote. Charles brought in his two boys from his previous marriage, Cole and Zach, and Lori brought in her two children from previous marriages, Colby and Tylee. Charles seems to have been an entrepreneur, a businessman, and he was making good money. He was providing a good life for his family. Remember, Lori was going through tough custody battles with ex-husband Joe Ryan throughout the beginning of her marriage to Charles. So although Lori and Charles met in Texas and had both lived there for many years, the couple would decide shortly after marrying to move to Arizona. And regardless of the custody battle and the fact that Lori would barely let Joe see Tylee, we know that he followed them there and got himself an apartment in Phoenix, Arizona to be closer to his daughter. Lori's oldest son, Colby, flourished here in Arizona. This was the first place that felt like a true home to him. He had been with Lori through multiple marriages and multiple stints as a single mom. When things got tough for Lori, she would always just pick up and leave. Colby remembers moving multiple times and never truly having a stable home life. But once they were in Arizona, he felt like he was finally home. He looked up to Charles and loved him like a dad, which was a relief after his tense relationship with Joe Ryan and the disappointment that he was to Colby as a stepfather. Whether the allegations of Joe sexually assaulting Colby are true or not, they definitely had a relationship full of turmoil and Colby did not like Joe, but he did like Charles. Although this does seem like a happier time in the family's life where they were enjoying family time, barbecues, and vacations together, things weren't perfect. 
In the background was that custody battle that Lori was going through with Joe. And on top of that, Charles's ex-wife, Cheryl, was raising concerns herself with the court system. Charles and Cheryl's custody battle wouldn't end until around 2014, and Cheryl's accusations are pretty heavy. Honestly, I was hesitant to even share them, and I'm not going to even use the names since all the kids were literally literal children at this time. So I'll kind of leave it up to everyone to make these connections themselves. But I also feel like I couldn't leave it out because it ties into the petitions that Joe Ryan was making to have Tylee back as well. So here we go. On April 9th, 2007, Cheryl files an affidavit. And this was the same year that Joe Ryan was attacked by Alex Cox. Cheryl states, quote, I am bringing this suit based on several facts and a number of incidents that have taken place which cause me grave concern for the safety and emotional well-being of my children, end quote. Now, Cheryl had originally liked Lori the first time that she met her. She thought Lori was charming and funny and seemed like a really nice lady. They were sitting at Cheryl's and Charles' son's baseball game when Lori sat beside her and said, you must think I'm an idiot because I'm with your ex-husband. And this made Cheryl laugh, and the two went on to have a good conversation, but over time, Lori started to make Cheryl nervous. Something seemed off about her, and as more concerns just started to pile up, Cheryl decided her children were no longer safe in Lori's home. Oh, I wonder what. Yeah, we'll get into it right here. Oh, okay. So, yeah, she she did lay out multiple reasons for this, starting with the fact that for the past year before filing this claim, Lori was in her own bitter custody battle with her third husband, Joe. She states that not only did Joe have to undergo a psychosexual evaluation during this fight, but that it was also suggested for Lori and Colby to undergo psychosexual evaluations themselves. She continues on to say that her own sons have made several allegations of sexual abuse done to them by their stepbrother while in the home of Charles and Lori Vallow. She goes on to state that one of her sons has also shared this information with his therapist. She talked about how their stepbrother left a message on her son's phone saying, I miss the things we do at night. And this stopped her in her tracks. It made her super uncomfortable and it just did not sit right. She also stated that she found a provocative photo on her son's cell phone of her son's younger stepsister, who was only four years old at that time. Now, this is where it all ties in to Joe Ryan's claims with the court because he was filing to have custody agreements changed pertaining to Tylee, and this was also one of his concerns. He stated that a judge claimed he was worried about what was happening in that home and that there were abuse allegations surrounding Tylee's stepbrothers towards Tylee. Now, Cheryl's children were appointed a guardian ad litem or whatever on April 25th, 2007. And then a month later, Charles files a counterclaim on May 7th, 2007. 
He stated a general denial of allegations against him and that he believes that they could agree on a parenting plan. So all of Cheryl's claims were investigated. All the children were talked to at home and at school, and the investigation was thorough. In the end, it concluded that the children no longer needed to be questioned about sexual abuse except by a qualified therapist because Cheryl's children denied any abusive behaviors to all who questioned them. The investigation believed that the safety issues would best be addressed by Charles and Lori attending a protective parenting class and a sex abuse dynamics group and both classes were held at the Center for Child Protection. It was also ordered that the home be installed with camera surveillance and that Cheryl's boys were to not share a bedroom with any stepchildren that may live in Charles' home. It was agreed that Charles could continue his visitation with his boys without supervision, but both his children were ordered to continue therapy. So as you can see, it seems like this entire situation was just a mess. Charles and Lori had a lot to get through in their early marriage. And obviously their ex-spouses were not trusting the environment that the children were in. Cheryl does go back and forth with Charles, like I said. I think while she feels he had definitely made mistakes in parenting, she also seems to believe that he was a good dad. And then Joe Ryan, I mean, I don't think he felt that same way about Lori at all. He straight up thought she was the worst and he was right. But yeah, it kind of seems like maybe some of Cheryl's claims had some ground to stand on just because they do order like cameras to be installed, which seems crazy to me, but like maybe just for protection, just in case something was going on. Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah, but they still let the kids go over there. And like they said, it would best be addressed by, by Charles and Lori. So maybe it was just like they just had to work through blending that family, I guess. I mean, they were all really young. So I just found that interesting. And it also made me think if Cheryl's children were being abused at all, by their older stepbrother was he like was it true that he could have been sexually abused himself yeah by joe ryan yeah possibly so that kind of made me question like because i haven't i haven't believed Lori's claims at all because i just i don't trust Lori. but then i've wanted to listen to colby and that kind of stopped me a little and made me think like i mean i get that that could have happened. I mean, it oftentimes is passed down when someone is abused, they then go on to do that to someone else. Yeah. Now, as the custody battles simmer down, Lori and Charles believed they were ready for a new chapter. Charles' sister, Kay Woodcock, had been caring for her grandson with her husband, Larry Woodcock, and the task was becoming overwhelming. The couple loved this little boy and they wanted him to have the world, but they were getting older and this little boy needed more daily than they could give him. He had been born on May 25th, 2012, and his name was Cannon Tran. Cannon's dad was Kay's son from a previous marriage, and unfortunately, Cannon was born addicted to drugs. 
He was born to Todd Tran, who was Kay's son, and Mandy Ledger. So, mom, explain the process when a baby is born addicted to drugs. Is it apparent right away? How do they test the baby for drugs? And do you help the baby detox off these drugs? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a lot of info. Um, like I said, I think and I said in a podcast earlier, like some hospital will test the mother's urine when she comes in to give birth to see if she's positive for anything. And then so um, they would know to watch the baby for any signs of withdrawal. Um, but if they don't, um, babies can withdraw. The, the most severe withdrawal is from like opioids. So like either um, pain pills like Lortab or Norco or Oxycodone, stuff like that, um, or heroin. Um, those symptoms get, can get pretty severe and they usually show up like around day three to four. Oh, okay. So not like right away. Yeah, not usually right away. Some can if, you know, if, if it's pretty severe, you can see it right when they're born. They're like super shaky and jittery and super irritable Aww. and stuff. Um, but so like sad. methamphetamine, babies don't usually have severe withdrawal from that and don't really usually need any treatment. Um, the, the withdrawal from the opioids, though, they do need um, treatment most sometimes um, you can do medical treatment or um, there's a new thing called um, eat sleep and console and so uh, they try to have the moms there like 24 7 and they usually feed the baby let them sleep and if they're super irritable they, then they console them and um, with that they can sometimes get away without using medication okay that's cool hospitals do have to call CPS after when a baby is positive for drugs, right? Oh, yeah. With that, the couple, I think, did most likely have their rights terminated. And that's why, obviously, Kay and Larry stepped in to care for their grandson. Oftentimes, in cases of foster care, the system ideally does want the child to be with their family, if that's possible. And Larry explains the baby as... One that was screaming all the time when he came to their home. He just felt like the baby's little body kind of hurt as he worked through it. And Larry said that the only thing that would calm him down was to put him on his chest, skin to skin, and just snuggle him up there. And that he would like just lay there and like stop crying. And he, that he thinks that he felt safe right that's, there. That's pretty special for a grandpa to do that. Yeah, so he really bonded, and I, I think it's Kay's son from a previous marriage, so it's even, like, it's like his step-grandkid, and he just still, like, loved him so much and really, like... Yeah, I Which mean. can happen a lot, obviously. Like, I think Shannon, like, loves my kids, like, there. Oh, yeah, definitely. So... The Woodcocks loved the little boy, but like I said, they were getting older and they really needed help. And Charles and Lori were anxious to have a child of their own together. And after having many discussions with the Woodcocks, they decided to adopt baby Cannon in February of 2013 or 14. I've seen both years in different sources. They would name him Joshua J.J. Vallow. 
and he would later be diagnosed as being a level two on the autism spectrum. I wonder why they changed his name. I know. Like, they just wanted to give him his own name, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of odd. I don't know. Yeah. With autism, I don't really know very much about it, so I did look it up, and it stated that a level two requires substantial support. They have marked difficulties in verbal and nonverbal social communication skills. They may have repetitive behaviors and difficulty changing activities or focusing, and it's right in the middle range on the autism spectrum. Now, this might be a dumb question, but can like being born addicted to drugs cause autism at all or no? Um, yeah, it definitely causes some um, developmental delay, um, learning disabilities, <clears throat> and um, things like autism. Okay. Now, at first, Colby wasn't so sure about his parents adopting a brand new baby. I mean, they were literally starting all over when the rest of their kids were far from being babies. And at this point, Colby was almost out of the home. But the second JJ arrives, the family falls in love with him. And Tylee became super protective over JJ and was basically like a second mom to him. Soon after adopting JJ, Charles and Lori wanted to make a move to Hawaii. So in August of 2014, they moved to the island of Kauai, which honestly, that is not the island that I would choose, but it probably is the one you would choose. <laughs> like, I don't think I'd move there unless I was like an old retired couple. Oh, I love Kauai for the relaxation and stuff. But yeah, it might. I mean... He worked, he was able to do his work remotely, right? I think. And then I've also seen things where they say that he ran like a little business in Kauai, but it didn't say what. But yeah, basically he's a businessman. So I think he just kind of did business wherever. Yeah. And yeah, like Kauai is really beautiful. There's just not very much to do there. Like, it is very relaxing. Great vacation. I mean, that's the area we went. Oh. Which is Princeville. So I think that's more like of a slower pace. But I'm not sure about the other, like, cities in Kauai. I think they're a little bit more busy and, like, happening. Oh, okay. Probably have a lot more neighborhoods and stuff. I think Princeville is more, like, touristy, relaxing okay yeah because all i remember is like hotels and a beach and like nothing else <laughs> <laughs> so while the family is living in Kauai, Lori meets april at church an lds church april was a friend who was also a mom who had been divorced before and she felt this sort of instant connection with Lori. they were quick friends Colby was older at this time, and remember, he loved Arizona. That was the spot he finally felt at home. So soon after moving to Hawaii, he realized that he wasn't happy there and that his heart was back in Arizona. So he left Hawaii and returned to Arizona for college, where he met his now wife, Kelsey Ryan. Charles did business there in Kauai, and they enjoyed their time spent on the island. I believe they just had Tylee and JJ with them, and I think Charles's two sons, Cole and Zach, stayed back with their mom. But after a couple of years, they were all missing their family back home. 
So after two years of living in Hawaii, Charles and Lori moved their family back to Arizona in late 2016. And life is good for a couple more years. Lori and Charles were loving raising JJ and everyone felt like he fit right into their family. But then 2018 comes and it's a year that would start the ultimate destruction of their family the destruction of multiple families, and change the course of everyone's lives for the worst. In early 2018, on April 3rd, police were dispatched to the apartment of Joseph Ryan in Phoenix, Arizona. Authorities had been called in for a welfare check on Joe. It wasn't Joe's family or daughter that noticed Joe wasn't around anymore. Remember, he was taken from his parents at a young age and put into the foster care system. And his sister, Annie Cushing, had estranged from him after that outburst over his leaking roof. So he didn't have very many family connections. And his daughter was mostly kept from him by Lori. It was Joe's neighbor who called in for a welfare check. This neighbor hadn't seen Joe for more than a week when his dog alerted to a strong odor coming from next door. Police knock on the door of Joe Ryan's home, but there's no answer. So they enter, and as they walk into the bedroom, they discover Joe Ryan's body on his bed already decomposing. Their hearts drop as they stare at him for just a moment in disbelief. The TV still playing in the background. Now, um, was Alex Cox still in Arizona? I think so. Yes, Alex lived in Arizona during this time. Okay. The medical examiner rules Joe's death as natural causes and arterial sclerosis. I can't say it. So it's arterial sclerosis. Okay cardiovascular disease yeah how old was he though he was let's see so he was 59 at the time that he died it says okay so pretty young but i mean still can happen if you're cardiovascular yeah so joe's sister the one who was estranged from him annie she made a statement about her talk with Lori about joe's death quote When she was talking about his death, she went into pretty graphic detail about the state of his match, about the state of his mattress. I had to stop her from sharing more, end quote. Now, although Annie and Lori at some point would talk about Joe's death, that is not how Joe's family was notified of the death. Annie was called by the medical examiner himself and who informed her of Joe's death. Police had called to inform Lori about Joe's death about 10 days after his body was discovered on April 13, 2018. But Annie and any of Joe's family, they weren't called until five weeks later. Five weeks. Wow. Did he not have a funeral? Nope. So after they had notified Lori, Lori just left Joe's body there and no one else came to claim Joe's body because no one knew he was dead. Lori leaves him there. She doesn't inform the family and Joe was cremated due to being unclaimed. So why did they call her? 
Because they were divorced, right? She was still listed as the next of kin. So that's just who they notified. Oh. And remember, he's not really close with any of his family. So his family was super dysfunctional. Huh. And then after his body sits there for five weeks because Lori doesn't want to do anything with it, eventually the authorities just run a background check on Joe to track down a family member. And then this is how they got in touch with Annie. And Annie was devastated when she heard the news. She hurries to call Lori because Lori had her niece, Joe's daughter, and she wanted Tylee to know as soon as possible about her dad. What Annie didn't know is that Lori was already aware Joe was dead. Annie kept trying to call Lori and Lori just wouldn't answer. She'd text her and no response. Until Annie finally resorts to emailing Lori saying that it was about Joe and it's urgent. Finally, Annie gets in touch with Lori, but Lori's just like, oh yeah, sorry, I found out like a month ago. We already know. And Annie just sort of felt this like punch to her gut. She had actually stayed in touch with Lori all these years after she split from her brother. And the two women would send pictures of their kids back and forth. So she sort of thought of Lori as a distant sister. Why would she not tell her that her brother had died? And Annie was really baffled when she discovered this. That, that's different. Obviously, something's up. You don't just not notify the family, even if you don't like the dude. <laughs> I know. That just seems really <laughs> odd. Like, you're still going to notify. You're still going to, if you're a normal person, you're still going to be heartbroken for your daughter, whose dad that is. Right. And let his family know. Yeah. You should feel some sort of empathy for the other people that you know that you care about, that care about this guy. She's a piece of work. I know. Oh, I hate her. And, you know, Annie wanted some of her brother's stuff back. So she does ask to come to Arizona to collect some of Joe's belongings. And Lori had told Annie that her and Tylee already went through the apartment and they were the ones that kind of cleared it out, got documents, took photo albums, but that Annie could come and go through the photo albums and take what she wanted. So Annie decided to visit in May. Annie says, quote, The album still had that strong smell of death, but Lori didn't seem to care. End quote. Annie also came across Joe's most recent driver's license, and she hadn't seen him in a while. Remember, they were estranged, and she was shocked to see what he looked like. She explained him as looking like a shell of a man after all that he had been through. During this visit, Annie was spending time with Tylee and really starting to see that mean side of Lori, and this side she had never witnessed before. Whenever Tylee would bring up her dad, Lori would tell her to stop, that the world was a better place without Joe in it. Oh, Which, like, my okay, <laughs> you're just going to straight up say that right in front of his sister. And daughter. Yeah. When she decides someone's dead to her, it's like she does not care. Yeah. I mean, that's just sad for the daughter. Annie was so shook by this trip that she started texting her own daughter and one text read, quote, Lolo was crazy. I saw a dark side of her when I was there that makes me question some of her claims, end quote. 
Another saying, quote, I regret going down there. She may be a sociopath, end quote. And then another, quote, to her, this was all a game. She had no empathy for the suffering anyone else was experiencing, including Tylee, end quote. And with this, she cuts ties with Lori after leaving Arizona, and she never saw Lori or Tylee ever again. That's interesting because, I mean, that's her niece. Yeah, but I'm sure if she didn't have ties with Lori, Lori wasn't going to let her see Tylee. That's true. Annie was heartbroken that her brother not only laid in his bed decomposing for a whole week while no one noticed, but that no one was even notified until 10 days later. That still, after Lori was notified, she wouldn't claim his body and he was just cremated by the county. That it took five weeks for his family to even be made aware of his death. Quote, when Joe died, there wasn't even an obituary for him. It was as if this guy passed without any recognition for his life. Even if there is a lot of animosity between them, you do that for your child. End quote. I know he must have not had any like friends or anybody checking up on him. Yeah, well, he he had moved his whole entire life from Texas to Arizona. I think he literally was just in Arizona to be closer to Tylee and do these custody battles and you know, fight for his time. Yeah, that's sad. So Annie was super hurt when she realized that the first time she had tried to reach out to Joe after their long estrangement, that he was probably already dead. She had reached out to him on March 27th, 2018. And remember, his body wasn't found until April 3rd, but he was already decomposed at that time. She had messaged her brother on Facebook to let him know that their biological mother had been confirmed dead. He didn't have contact with his mom. She was homeless at the time that she died. And Annie's, and Annie's message read, quote, Hey, Joseph, I hope you're doing well. You may already be aware of this, but mom is confirmed deceased. Every once in a while, I would look for her online. But when I opened her page, I had bookmarked a while ago. It said she died on 12101. She was pretty much a stranger to me, but you probably knew her better than any of us. Take care. End quote. And unfortunately, Joe never saw that message from his sister. Why didn't, like, Lori claim his body? I'm sure she just didn't want to do anything for him. I'm sure she didn't want to do his funeral. She didn't want to pay for the cremation. I mean, that is a very heartless woman. Yeah, that is cold. That is a cold thing to do. That is your daughter's dad. Yeah, I feel like if I hated somebody really bad, I still, and they had nobody else, I, I still would do it for them. Yeah. On some level, you should respect the parent of your child. And you should at least respect your child enough to help them with that like what she say to Tylee oh your dad's dead like you're not going to a funeral you're not going to hear about him again you're not allowed to talk to him I know mm. and then what do you know Lori of course takes out the claim on Joe's life insurance and gets Tylee set up to receive his social security benefits was Lori the beneficiary of his life insurance or Tylee 
Yeah, remember we talked about that last time, how when they got divorced, it was put in his divorce. Oh, that he had. In their divorce decree that she had to be the beneficiary on his life insurance. Yeah, okay. Yep, so Lori claimed it, and then Tylee was receiving his social security. Okay. So a bit after this, Charles's sister, Kate Woodcock, was visiting the Vallows, and while Lori drove Kate to the airport, she says... Did you hear about Tylee's dad? And Kay is like, yes, I'm so sorry to hear that. What happened? And then Lori just goes on this rant about how it's okay because Joe is evil and no one even knew he was dead because no one wants to be around him because he's a terrible person. The world is better without him. It's better for everyone because now Tylee doesn't have to go visit him. Plus, they got his insurance and his social security benefits. So don't worry, it's all good. Which like, whoa, Lori, okay. (laughs) Red flag. Like, like you're creeping people out. (laughs) Now, Lori's own younger brother, Adam Cox, told detectives in Arizona at the Chandler Police Department, quote, there's got to be somewhere they talked this through because Lori and Alex planned Joe's death, end quote. Adam then refers back to the tasering incident, quote, they planned how they were going to kill Joe and Al was going to taser him, throw him in the trunk and take him out to a field and shoot him and then bury him. Well, Al went to taser him and it didn't work and Joe called the cops and Al went to jail, end quote. And then another one of Lori's friends from her time in Kauai said something similar to Adam's claims, quote, she said eventually Joe is going to die for what he did. She's like, people don't get away with stuff like that. She said that he had gone off the wall and gone crazy because of what he did to them, end quote. Well, it's months after Joe's death when Lori attends a conference where she is having a religious discussion. According to Eric Grossarth with East Idaho News, Lori starts out that discussion talking about Jesus Christ and how much she loves him. And then she continues on talking about how she has had experiences with angels and how even Angel Moroni has visited her. Isn't Moroni the angel that's on top of the temple? Yes. Well, he didn't visit you, Lori. (laughs) (laughs) And then she starts to talk about Joe Ryan and how their divorce was tough, about how he hurt her kids. And she says, quote, I was going to murder him. I was going to kill him like the scriptures say, like Nephi killed, just to stop the pain and to stop him coming after my children, end quote. Lori talks about how Joe somehow turned the judges against her, how he was just continuing to try and get Tylee to rub it in her face. And then she keeps talking about murder. Quote, I would go through the scriptures and find all the things. If he comes against you once, if he comes against you twice, if he comes against you three times, then you can kill him. It says it in the scriptures. I did not have a murderous heart. I just wanted to stop the bleeding and the pain. I was like, I'm either going to turn my life to the temple or I'm going to commit murder. End quote. And she decided to commit murder, it sounds like. Yeah, girl, you should have turned to the temple because like 
becoming a cuckoo nutbag on everyone was not the right path. Nope. Wrong choice. Now, at this point, when we are talking about this case right now, the Chandler Police Department in Phoenix, Arizona, has felt compelled to reopen the case of Joe Ryan. But the police found no connection to Lori, and the case was closed again. I mean, remember, he was cremated before his family even knew he died. So Joe Ryan may have died naturally, sure, just a coincidence. But I think Lori knows more about his death. He died within a year or so of her moving back to Arizona from Hawaii. Her brother Alex had attempted to harm him once before. And by 2018, Lori had been battling Joe for 14 years. I think maybe, just maybe, Joe's death was the start of Lori's murder spree. Now, this conference that Lori was having this discussion at was actually where she met Chad Daybell. In October of 2018, Lori saw an opportunity to travel to St. George, Utah and attend a spiritual conference. And the group was called Preparing a People. This group is basically an organization that helps prepare people of this earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. According to East Idaho News, their website states that it doesn't represent any church or official church doctrines. The multimedia group that put on the Preparing a People event described the conference as a series of lecture events, and they have explained that this isn't a group or a cult, that they have nothing to do with the doomsday couple, that it's not something people can join. It's just educational lecture events that people of any background can attend. Preparing a people actually had to come out with a statement after the couple's deadly desires were discovered. Quote, we also do not share any of Chad Daybell's or Lori Vallow's beliefs if they are contrary to Christian principles of honesty, integrity, and truth, and if they do not align with the doctrines of the Church of Latter-day Saints, end quote. And by this time, Lori was already obsessed with Mormon extremist groups, and she had read Chad's books. So when they met, it was an immediate attraction. Well, I think Chad was instantly attracted to Lori's appearance, while Lori was more attracted to all that Chad seemed to be, the author, his beliefs, and how he put her on a pedestal. Now, I don't really want to get into looks because I don't actually care about that, but I do think it literally plays a role in Chad's motives. Chad literally, to me, just looks like a fluffy old grandpa. (laughs) He's got the double chin going on. And he honestly, he's just honestly never fit into the typical beauty standards of society, which is fine. You don't have to fit into the typical beauty standards. But again, like I said, I think it plays a role here. He's just straight up not attractive. (laughs) Oh my gosh. In your opinion. Yes. But like, honestly, I've heard it in a lot of places. I would would agree with you. Like, I've heard a lot of people say the same thing. So while if you look someone somewhat like Chad, you you look great and you're not evil. So it doesn't matter. But Chad sucks. 
So, and the thing is, is that Lori, on the other hand, did fit into these typical beauty standards. Again, not saying it matters, but it just plays into my theory on the case, so I have to say it. And the thing is that Lori has always dated attractive men. Her current husband at this time that she met Chad, Charles Vallow, he's super handsome, he's super charming, he dresses well, but somehow she meets Chad and I guess he's the one. And then even her friend, Melanie Gibb, who was a part of Chad's following, said something once like, well, she was attracted to him intellectually. It's like... (laughs) Yeah, we like, know. Like, we could have guessed that. We 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 hear what you're saying. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it did blow my mind when I first saw this. I'm like, okay, your husband right now, good looking. He actually looks Chad? better. Ugh. Like, now, I think he's lost some weight. Yes, I actually have thought that, too. Like, when they get married in Hawaii, even, like, I thought he looked better than before, but still. like yeah. I don't like him. Mm-hmm. But she's, I mean, you could tell she was a pretty lady, but she started looking hard looking, I would think. Like when she appears in court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope she's having a hard time in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, during this conference, I guess sparks were flying. They hit it off and were immediately immersed in this new love story. Although, Lori was married to Charles Vallow at the time, and Chad also had a wife, Tammy Daybell. But Tammy was not on Chad's mind this weekend. While he was with Lori, he decided she was a goddess, that she had unearthly powers, and he made sure to tell her this. While most of us would be creeped out and there would be a us-shaped hole in the wall from bouncing out of there so quickly, Lori was flattered. <laughs> I sent you a picture of her in, <laughs> in her court appearance. Oh, yeah. She's looking rough. She looks like she's not having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and he has definitely, Chad has definitely lost a lot of weight. And he's like trying to do his hair. In that what he's like trying to be stylish now. But that's not how he ever was. No, to me, I mean, this is stereo- stereotypical, but he looked like kind of the older, frumpy, Mormon-looking guy. Yeah, just like an average dad, grandpa dude. But I think the point <laughs> of it is we're not like saying how terrible they look. It's just like an odd couple. I don't know. It does show me that I think Lori was attracted to his teachings, that she... I think she really wanted it to be true. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But then it shows me that Chad, like Chad, I think he knew all along that what he was preaching was BS. And I think Chad's motive was because some hot lady finally liked him for the first time in his life. And he was like, <laughs> what can I do to be with this lady? <laughs> I'm serious. Oh, my God. Like, that is Chad's motives to me. Uh, <laughs> I really think funny. that. You're like, I don't think he was psycho. I just think he uh, finally had some hot lady paying attention to him. I, like, I literally think that. I think Chad's <laughs> motives are tell as old as time. Lust, money, insurance money, and, yeah, those are the two things. Sex and money. 
people kill for that crap all the time. Yeah. So when they met, Chad told Lori about how their meeting was meant to be. In fact, he was driving down the freeway that Friday morning, coming to the conference, when all of a sudden a voice comes out of nowhere and says, you will meet an extraordinary woman today who will change your life forever. And you should kill your wife so that you could be with her. Yes, you guys should kill so many people so you can be together and ultimately just end up in jail. It's it's interesting how convenient those voices can be. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly what I think. Like, yep, yep. So everything that Chad spews is just so convenient. Yep. Now, later on in their relationship, Chad writes a novel to Lori about their love story. Remember, he's this author. So he sends her all these emails, 12 pages full of their love story and then hundreds of texts. But this is a novel, remember, so he doesn't refer to them as Chad and Lori. He gives them character names of James and Elena. Quotes from this book were laid out in Dateline's newest episode, The Doomsday Files. Quote, Feelings were strong as if they had known each other for oh so long. He couldn't deny their connection and his absolute attraction to her. She still seemed way out of his league. Their feelings could not be restrained any longer and a long-awaited makeout session took place in the lobby. This was manifest in the mortal world to James and Elena through the scientific phenomenon known as loin fire. Oh my gosh. You were turned on by her or what? Like, is that what you're trying to say? Because loin felt like it was on fire. (laughs) The scientific phenomenon known as loin fire. Okay, you're referring to being turned on by someone? Loin, like L-O-I-N? Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's so cringy. It is. (laughs) And then he's not done. He goes on to say, as James placed his hands on her head, he connected with Elena's true eternal self. He knew he was in the presence of an exalted goddess who had returned to earth to perform a special mission. She then gave him a tremendous blessing that helped him realize how much she truly loved him and wanted to be with him forever, end quote. And if that doesn't give you a really creepy insight into his mindset, then I don't know what will, (laughs) because that was too much for me. That's, yes. I I don't love that. I feel embarrassed for him that people read that. You have secondhand (laughs) embarrassment. <laughs> like that should be like a common phrase that we use in our family from now on loin fire it's just like so gross <laughs> i hate it i hate it it makes me feel sick <laughs> now when they met chad explained to Lori that he saw himself as a prophet a being that was more than human he could actually cross the veil into heaven and back He talked with spirits, and he was somewhat of a god. And Lori, she was his goddess. He told Lori that this wasn't their first time meeting. No, they were just coming back together again. They were both meant to find each other because they were married in previous lives. Multiple times. 
So like all of this weird stuff, like none of this is LDS beliefs. This is his made up like. Yeah. So the church that all his beliefs and all of his teachings are actually this own church and this own following he started called the Church of the Firstborn. The first four? Firstborn. Like birth, like B-O-R-N. Yeah. The Church of the Firstborn. Oh, firstborn. Yes. And, you know, they have this mission. They were There were only 144,000 people on this earth that were meant to be saved, and they needed to find those people. This was going to become their life's work to recruit the 144 and bring them to where they would be saved in Rexburg, Idaho, which again, really convenient, Chad, since that's literally where you actually live. Like the 144 are gathering in Rexburg. That's where the second coming will happen. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, because you that's where your home is. <laughs> you just want everyone to move there to you. Yep. Pretty much. Yes. But Lori, she loved this idea. She knew this is what she was meant to do. And so they started searching for the saved people that were on earth. The people they needed to gather. But watch out because anyone who was not a light spirit meant to be saved. Well, they were a dark spirit. Evil. Some of them would be zombie-like. And these people were not meant to walk this earth anymore, according to Chad and Lori. Chad and Lori needed to get rid of the dark spirits that surrounded them. Or was this just a convenient excuse to murder anyone who got in the way of them being together? Only two days after they met, Chad emailed Lori with some bad news. Her daughter, Tylee, well, she's actually a dark spirit. And with this, Lori doesn't run. She doesn't ask him to stop contacting her. No, she's like, yes, my daughter is a dark spirit. And she starts contemplating all that she was meant to do. She starts planning. Chad and Lori start scheming together. So who is this Chad Daybell? Where did he even come from? What is his background? Well, we will dive into all of that on our next episode And I know we didn't get into the murders today, but we will be wrapping up this whole story in our third and final episode on this case. Today, I wanted to talk about turtles. And did you know that they're born with a baby tooth? And they lose that baby tooth in one hour. This egg tooth helps them break out of their shell. Thank you for listening to to me and my mom and my nanny. 
You know what I'm about to ask. I'm about to ask you guys to leave us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow our show and keep bringing you this content. If you already have, you're amazing. I love you. I literally owe you so much. If you have any case suggestions or a story of your own to email us for our listeners' stories, you can email those at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. You can follow us on social media for pictures and information on every case we cover. Find us on Instagram at truecrimexpod, truecrimexpod, or on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast. This podcast is researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. Our co-host is my mom, Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser giver is my daughter, Charlie Waters. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. Stick around to get organization information. Okay, guys, if you visit www.victimsofcrime.org, you will find the National Center for Victims of Crime. They have been running for 35 years and you can support them. They're a nonprofit organization. They're supported by individual donors. You can find them and support them. They are a nonprofit organization. They are supported by individual donors, corporations, foundations, and government grants. The donations to the National Center go an extremely long way, they say, in ensuring services provided to victims. You can visit this website and just click Donate Now. You can also donate by phone or by mail.